Jeremiah 17 is a chapter that I have been wanting to bring a sermon from for quite a while, actually. Uh, Here's just a moment of sort of pastoral confession, I'll say. (laughs) As I was preparing this sermon in the last couple weeks, I was trying to find a way to approach it. Uh, As I have been preaching for going on two years here, you likely know where my comfort zone is. I like to come to a text, discern three points, and get those three points to you, and also make sure Jesus is everywhere in it, and that's what I like to do. Uh, For whatever reason, though, um, I I was trying to attack this chapter from that way. There was, there's a sermon in there, and I've saved it uh, from verse 8 about trees and how Christians are trees. And you can trace uh, all of the, the illustrations of, of we who believe in Jesus being firmly planted as a tree, as it says here, by living waters. Uh, and I was going to focus on that. And then the Spirit moved. And then I was going to focus on that word in verse 12, sanctuary, and, and get three points out of that. In verse 12, that there is a place that is our sanctuary. And, and I, I've saved that sermon for another time. <laughs> because for whatever reason, I could not escape the first verse. I could not escape the words the harsh words, the, the, the very serious words of verse 1. As Jeremiah the prophet declares to God's people the sin of Judah. Your sin is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their hearts and upon the horns of your altars. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Goodbye. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was thinking about that and just how to struggle and wrestle with this type of message and this type of chapter on a day in which we like to think about things of love and, and things of, of you know nice flowers and hearts and chocolates and things. But I couldn't escape verse 1. Now, knowing what we know about Jeremiah, you might presuppose that all of Jeremiah is like this. It's all doom and gloom. It's all very sour and dour, and and, and, and that's mostly true. Uh, If you read the 52 chapters of Jeremiah, it is filled with messages uh, like this. Pinpointing Judah's uh, sins, their great and grave rebellion against their God. This is why he's known as the weeping prophet, because his message as God's prophet was not one of hopefulness, not one that was filled with much uh, gospel, so to speak. Oh, sorry. Uh, That's also why he is known as, or I've I've also come to see him as sort of like the buzzkill of the Bible. (laughs) He has this message that he's been given by God to deliver to God's people that's just filled with judgment and wrath. Pinpointing the ways that they've failed. The ways that they've uh, not lived up to God's standards. And it is often, I think, books like this, book like Jeremiah, that lead many, I think, to assume uh, that the man upstairs is just a perpetually annoyed God who just wants to seek vengeance on those people who are annoying him. The people like us that keep failing. That he wants to make sure that they uh, straighten up and fly right as the song says. (laughs) That God is only bent towards judgment and punishment. You know, why else would the longest book in the Bible uh, contain and be almost only concerned with God's corrective judgment? 
Did you know that? That Jeremiah, according to the Hebrew, is the longest book in the Bible. Has the most Hebrew words out of all of the Old Testament books. And what's the prevailing, predominant theme? That you have failed. That your sins, as I said here, are written with a pen of iron. And therefore you're going to feel God's judgment. This, of course, isn't the whole story. That's just... A very surface level view of what this book is about. Because yes, God indeed cares about how his people live. And how they conduct their lives. And their uh, sort of inattention to God's word and God's holiness. Will certainly, as it says in verse 4, make his anger, as it says, burn forever. And he's very clear uh, that throughout this book, uh, throughout Jeremiah, that his people, they're going to feel the effects of their sins. That their actions have consequences. And they are going to feel them in a very profound way. But that's not the whole story. Because even throughout this book, which is filled with such dire messages of God's people's hearts and lives and conditions, he everywhere sprinkles messages of hope. uh, Messages precisely about a God who offers relief. And he wants to bring it about. However, this relief is only and can only be experienced... By those who are willing to recognize that it's necessary. You see, often throughout uh, this book you will notice that God's people are in a state of mind in which they almost don't see the need for God and see the need for his word. They hadn't seen how desperate they were. How necessary that his word was in their headstrong and and prideful ways. They deemed themselves strong and sufficient in and of themselves. And in that mindset, it was leading them straight into despair. Straight into the gutter, so to speak. And we, to be more specific, it was leading them straight into exile. Because that's that's the message. Verse 4, if you go there. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 4 is uh, God speaking through Jeremiah. And thou, even thyself, regarding Judah, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. All those promises of living in a land filled with milk and honey, God was going to snatch them out of that promised land because of their inattentiveness, because of their rebellion, because of their sin. And instead, as he says here, they're going to be taken into a land that they know not to serve their enemies. Exile and enslavement. This is what was coming for God's people. And this is the message that Jeremiah is told to give. Can you just step back, just step back and put yourself in Jeremiah's sandals? That you are commissioned by God to preach to your family, to your friends, to all of the people you've done life with. That guess what? Your actions, it's dooming us all. That all that you have ever said and done because of your failure, because of your rebellion, you're spelling all of this nation's downfall. It's leading not to prosperity because of what, how strong and sufficient you think you are. It's actually kindled God's anger and it's actually going to lead you to toil and ruin and death. 
What's more, if, if it can't even get worse than that, Jeremiah is saying almost throughout all of this that you can't do anything about it. Talk about a weeping prophet. He weeps perhaps in the giving of the message, but he weeps perhaps because of what the message is. It's a message of deep desperation. Such is how this text begins. As he says again, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Here he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing the problem that Judah was facing. Namely this, that they had a sin that had a permanent stain on them. Their rebellion, it was permanent. If there was some sort of like ledger that you're keeping uh, sort of like accounts with. If there was a ledger that kept accounts for all of Judah's good and bad deeds, Judah's record was not written down with pencil. Something easily erased. You just flip your pencil over and you erase that little mark. No. This was written with a pen of iron that had a diamond point in it. The strongest element in the universe. And it's imprinted on their hearts that you are sinners. You failed the Lord your God. That's the message that Jeremiah is giving. That their rebellion is inscribed on their permanent record in an, in, a, in an ink that's unerasable. It can't be blotted out. It can't be scratched out. And they can't unsee it because it's engraven with a diamond. This is bringing their sin ever before them. Is ever before their eyes, is ever before their hearts, is ever in the forefront of their thoughts. As an unfading reminder that they had rebelled, they had failed, they had sinned against their only true God. It was engraven, as it says there, on the table of their heart. Which, if you study throughout the Old Testament, is heart It's not the muscle that pumps. It's there to mean sort of the inner man. The deepest part of their being. We might suffice to say their soul. The very center of who they were as a people was marred by an adulterous faith. By a faith that constantly ran to other gods. That constantly ran to other things to take the place of God. And therefore they were rejecting the ways of the Lord. And because of this. This permanent iron sin that was written with a diamond point. Here they are going to feel the heat of God's wrath. And such is what Jeremiah says. Verse 2. Or verse 1 again. This Sin is written on the table of their heart and upon the horns of their altars. Whilst their children remember their altars in their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O my mountain, in the field I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil. And thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. And thou, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage. That I gave thee, and I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. Their betrayal of God 
would result in the losing of God's blessings. All of the things that they had come to love and know and cherish were going to be taken away. As we mentioned earlier, exile and enslavement was in their future. The promised land was not going to be theirs anymore. We, we actually preached on that a couple, several months ago now. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 32. Remember, Babylon is about to invade. They're literally on the doorstep of losing all of what they come to know. Remember that wonderful story? By the way, little a little teaser of hope in this, in this book. Because remember Jeremiah 32. He is given a calling by God to buy the land that's going to be invaded. Why? Because God is promising him that they will, there will come a day when they will return to that land. That's Jeremiah 32. A little sneak peek of what God's going to do. That this darkness won't last forever. But even still in this present, they are going to feel these very fiery hot effects of God's justice. That their lives of peace would dissipate into lives of servitude. These verses here. This sin that is causing God's anger, as it says, to kindle. It is God himself, I believe, openly declaring his frustration with his people. It's frustration for their their wayward hearts and minds from the things of the Lord. And that has caused his righteousness to fume. That's the picture behind that phrase. A a fire that kindles mine anger as it says in verse 4. It literally evokes the picture of almost a raging bull. Who's about to charge with nostrils flaring in righteous fury. He's breathing heavily with righteous indignation over his people's failure. I don't know about you, but I don't like that picture of God. (laughs) That's a tough picture to keep in my mind. That when I fail in the ways of God, there's a fury that breathes out of God that is holy and righteous. Many people don't like to hear that portrait of a God whose name is love. They can't sort of of, uh, combine, uh, as we know, this God whose name is love and this God here who is filled with, as it says, with an anger that burns forever. How do those coalesce? I think that's because I was really pondering this. And I think it's because our only familiarity with anger is the fallen sort. Our only sort of introduction to uh, anger here on this earth is anger that's tinged everywhere with sin. No matter how righteous the cause, no matter how upright the the sort of thing that we're angry about is always tinged with a little bit of sin. uh, Because we are sinners to the core. Here God is declaring that there is a righteous sort of anger that he has. Is anger not motivated by any sense of selfishness? Is anger that's not motivated by any sense of vengeance or comeuppance? He doesn't want his people just to feel wrath. He wants them to feel wrath for a purpose. Why? So that they could see his love. See, this is what makes God's righteous anger so much different than our anger. Because it's not anger, but it's motivated by anything other than love. 
You see, God is so in love with his people that his anger is kindled at the very notion that they would be duped into believing that something else, anything else, had their best interest in mind other than him. He's their creator. He's their God. And anything that comes in between that relationship kindles his anger. Because he's their God and he loves them. With an unfading love. Yes. It's an anger that's kindled. And motivated by love. Stirred. Whenever we believe the lie that something else is better at being God than he is. This goes all the way back to the garden. This, this sin it's taken various forms. It's taken various manifestations. It's taken various different avenues. But it's a sin that goes all the way back to Eden. And it carries on even today. You remember, God, he made everything. He spoke everything into existence. All was there fully uh, for man to take and live and flourish and thrive. He had everything he needed in that place. Nothing was lacking. And then the sin came in because of the lie that was told first by that serpent. And what was the lie? That God was holding something back. That God didn't really have their best interests in mind. He didn't really have uh, all, of, uh, all of their flourishing. He didn't want them to thrive. He was holding something back. Here, take this and you can be like God. And you can truly know and truly have all of your own ways. Because you too can be better than God. You too can be like God. The lie of the garden was a lie that said that God didn't have our best interests in mind. That we needed something else. That's a lie that continues to this day. It's a lie that's written on the tables of not just Judah's hearts, but all of man's hearts. And such is why God is furious. Because after all that he has created and spoken into existence precisely for the good of man and for the glory of his name, we basically spat in God's face and said, no, you're holding something back. All of your rules and regulations, all of those things, they are actually obstructing my joy. I need something else. I need to become like God. A lie that we continue to say to ourselves. This is the problem Jeremiah is bringing before these people. The sin that's written with a diamond pointed pen on your heart is the sin that you've, you've jilted your lover, your creator, and there's nothing you can do about it. You've, you've adulterated his faith by rejecting him and going to other gods, by claiming that there's something in someone else that is better at being God than he is. And the hope of this passage, verse 5, that you can't do anything about it. No man can do anything about it. Look at verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. No mortal human being can solve this problem. You have the problem of sin, a permanent record on Judah's whole entire existence. 
And for Judah to put their hopes in sort of a man of flesh to solve their problems is detestable in God's eyes. He's disgusted by this. Cursed be those who put their trust in another man of flesh. In another man that I spoke into existence. A man in whose nostrils I breathe the breath of life. They can't be possibly powerful enough to settle this problem. And such is what his people were doing. You want to... Here's a... A teaser, so to speak, for the series I hope to start soon in First and Second Kings. You want to you know why that there's so much of a sequence of king after king after king in the Old Testament? Because it was Israel. They were putting their hopes in a man of flesh to fulfill what only God can do. And this king, he was good for a little while and then he failed. And then his son came and took the throne and he was a wretch. And then this king took the throne and he brought everyone back. And everyone was reviving again. And everyone was thinking that this is it. This is the God. This is the king that God everywhere has promised about. And then he died and he failed. And something else took the throne. There's sequence after sequence. Age after age. Dynasty after dynasty. In Israel's history. Reminding us that Israel had settled their hopes earthward. (laughs) They had trusted in flesh. Trusted in someone of skin and bone to settle only what God can settle. And their hope was tethered to something and someone under the sun. Therefore, as it says at the end of verse 5, they had departed from the Lord. And in this, they had left themselves destitute. Like nothing but a tumbleweed in the desert. That's essentially the picture of verse 6. He shall be like a heath. Those who put their hopes and their trust in a man of flesh, as it says here, they're like a heath in the desert. And they shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. No mortal man could solve their problem, but even more hopeless, verse 9, Judah can't solve this problem on their own. Look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? No man can solve your problem precisely because every man has the same problem. That they are their own worst enemy. You don't even know how desperately sinful your own heart is. That's what here Jeremiah is saying to these people. That their rebellion went even farther than what they could comprehend. Who can know it? Who can see the ends to the degrees of sin that they will go? No one's wise enough to to see the limits of their own wickedness. Precisely because you're the biggest liar you've ever known. The biggest liar you have ever known in your life is you. Because you talk to yourself. And you're always self-justifying. You're always telling yourself the ways in which your actions and words and deeds were right. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. And this is why we don't need to let conscience be our guide. Because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. It's fraudulent to the core. Be careful how often you'd say, I'd never do that. There's stories that you see of men of faith failing in very drastic ways. And the self-justifier in me is saying, I would never do that. 
I would never commit that sort of sin. May God keep me from that declaration. Because who can know? I can't even know the sin of my own heart. It's too even deep than I, that, that I can even understand it. Because given the right set of circumstances, you might just do that. <laughs> do that, whatever that is. Whatever egregious thing that you're, that you're almost judging someone else for. Be careful. Because your heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. I, I once heard this and I think it's so good. That we are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline. And most of us are already on day two. <laughs> it reminds us that those people we read about, that could be us. Because the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's inscribed with a sin that was there by a diamond-pointed pen. And therefore, Jeremiah's diagnosis of Judah here is terminal. They are desperately wicked. Another way to translate that is incurably sick. They have, they have no hope of healing. And this problem of sin is not therefore just a matter of doing. It's not just a matter of things that they have done. It is a matter of who they are. The sin of Judah was written on the tables of their hearts. It's a sin of who they are. They are wicked sinners to the very depths of their person. And this is important. Because if sin was a matter of doing, if it was a matter of just bad actions, then to fix the problem, all they would need to be told is a matter of just undoing or redoing those actions with new and right actions. Just give me things to correct those things. If my problem is doing, help me redo or undo those things that I have done. But that misses the point. Because they don't just need... To do a different set of things, they need to be remade. They don't just need they don't just need an IV of antibiotics. They need a new heart. This sin goes deep enough to where they need a heart transplant, if I can continue the metaphor a little bit more. That's what they need. They don't just need an IV dripping in them, helping them uh, how to go about their lives. They need an entire remaking of their hearts. Who should they go to for that? Who can do that? What mortal can do that? Who can they look to to fix this desperately wicked heart that they have? Who can fix their being, who they are to the core? There's only one recourse they had left. One hope that they had left. Because, I love this. Because despite all of this atrocious sin. The sin that was so deep on their hearts and lives. This rebellion that permeated everything of who they were. Notice verse 12. Because in the midst of all that. They are given a sanctuary. Notice verse 12. A glorious high throne. From the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel and all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fount of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for thou art my praise. 
Their only recourse was to turn to the throne. To the one specifically who sits on the throne that's there from the beginning. What is the hope of those who've departed from the Lord? To repent of their distrust and trust in the Lord, the fount of living waters. Notice verse 7. Instead of verse 5, cursed is the man that trusteth in man. Verse 7, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when he cometh. But her leaves shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Repent of your distrust and and your trust in man. And trust only in the Lord, the hope of Israel. The fount of living waters. What do we really need? We need a God who can erase diamond point sins. That's what we need. And you see, this is what we get. Because even for those whose sin is deeper than they could ever imagine, there is still hope. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there's a sin in your life that's deeper than you could ever imagine. And you wish, you wish you could get it away. You wish that you could just undo it. You could redo something and make it not be there anymore. But it permeates your being. It permeates who you are. That all of your thoughts and your actions and your words. You can't even escape the thought of the sin. It just everywhere haunts you. There is a God. Who sits on a throne. Who can erase diamond point sins. Notice. You want to talk about some gospel. Jeremiah 31. You might know what these words mean, what these words are. But think about these words in juxtaposition with what we just heard. The message of diamond point sins. Notice verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, no, the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least unto them, unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Judah. The same nation who was defined by sin to their being is here saying, I am going to do this. I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to remember your sin no more. I am going to do this. This is the good news. This is the gospel. (laughs) Yes, our sins go deeper than we could ever know. And we, yes, we too, just like Judah and the people of this nation, have a record of sin that is written with a pen of iron on our hearts, that with a diamond-like point. And it says to us, you are a sinner condemned and deserving of hell. And we, in and of ourselves, cannot do anything to erase that record. 
It is painfully permanent. Yet in the middle of all that gloomy reality, we have a message of a throne. And on that throne is the Savior. The Savior who comes precisely for those who are sick with sin. And he says, my throne is your sanctuary. A safe place. A place of refuge. I love this because the place, back in Jeremiah 17, the place where we should be condemned is the place that becomes our place of safety. We should fear the throne and Jesus on the throne says, no, my throne is your sanctuary. Why? Because I have taken your sins for you. Our hope is the one who occupies that glorious and high throne from the beginning. Because the one who sits on it is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as he has promised to do. He is our hope. Verse 10, he knows the depths of our souls. He knows our hearts to the very core. And he's the one who replants us. He's the only one who can cancel the record of sin that's against us. You have to see this. Oh, I just got chills when I was saying this. Colossians. You might know what I'm going to, but it's, there's no surprise. I can't spoil the Bible. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2. So we have a, a record of sin that's against us. Notice Colossians 2 verse 13. You, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he, Jesus, quickened together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing triumphing over them in it. Those diamond-like pointed sins that are there inscribed on our records, Jesus cancels. He erases them. He blots them out. This is the work of the one who sits on the throne. So for all the sins that are present in your mind, that are written seemingly with unerasable ink, look to this throne. Look to this throne which is your sanctuary for all of the people who keep letting us down. For all the men of flesh that we cannot put our hopes in. Look to the throne and the one on it because he is the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Who cannot fall or waver or wobble. For all of the failures that we cannot seem to forget. forget. Look to this throne and the one who is on it is Christ who remembers our sin no more. For all those who are desperately wicked. Incurably sick, me. Look to the throne. Because it's occupied by none other than King and Savior Jesus, who everywhere declares that I have not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. This is your sanctuary, this is your throne. The place where Jesus is. 
The place where your Savior is. The only one who can redeem you out of unrepentable sins. Who can snatch you out of that gloom and that darkness. And raise you up into his life and light. Who can erase unerasable sins. Is this one Jesus. He is who you really need. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.